0: Welcome to the Shadows of Noir podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things film noir. My name is Dan, and I am the host of the show, and I would like to introduce a special guest for this episode, episode eight. It is our first guest episode, and with me today is Clay McCormick. He is the host of several podcasts and has been in the podcast game for almost a decade at this point, over a decade,
1: uh yeah almost a decade um yeah. the, the first show that i did is gonna, i think 10 years this year i think awesome awesome so am i supposed to ask to like say stop talking to me or i'll slap you around because we i thought we were talking like mike hammer for the entire thing
0: <laughs> i know i know it's some real tough tough talking dialogue in uh kiss me deadly <laughs> we will certainly get into um But yeah, I'll let let Clay introduce himself a little bit more, but I will just give him a little primer. Um, He is the host of several podcasts. Like I said, he's also a very talented professional artist and illustrator. He did the logo for Shadows of Noir, and he is also my older cousin and very much a mentor to me as I get into... The podcast game and learn my way around it. He's a great sounding board.
1: Well, uh, I've been doing it for ten years. I still don't really know what I'm doing, so take everything I tell you with a huge grain of salt. Okay, got it, got it. Uh,
0: but yeah, uh, Clay, please introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us about your podcasts and sure. uh, your work.
1: Yeah, I'm um, primarily I'm a comic book artist and writer. I uh, most recently I've been working on uh, Batman White Knight presents Generation Joker and Batman White Knight presents the Red Hood. And I've uh, written and illustrated a graphic novel called Bloody Hell, which came out a couple years ago. And I've been doing that for about... <clears throat> you know, every time someone asks me how long I've been do- working in comics, I always say, oh, I don't know, about 10 years or so. It's like closer to 20 at this point. <laughs> I feel like I'm lying about my age. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yeah, and I, I got into podcasting about <laughs> 10 years ago uh, when my friend Wes started a Star Trek show called The Penske File. And uh, I went from... Uh, periodical guest to permanent co-host. So I've been doing that for, yeah. You know, it'll be 10 years this year. So we have the Star Trek podcast, which is the Penske file. And then I also do the Rotten Horror Picture Show, which is a horror movie podcast where we talk about films off the Rotten Tomatoes, 200 best horror movies of all time list, which is a very flawed list, <laughs> if I do say so myself.
0: A very uh, dynamically flawed list, <clears throat> Dynamically, right?
1: always shifting, yeah. always changing, yes. Uh, and I also do a show called the bat-ass podcast where myself and fellow uh friend and artist sean murphy talk about batman the animated series usually for about 10 minutes and then we just talk for an hour and a half about other bullshit so sorry i don't know i I won't i won't swear on your show
0: no you're good you're good
1: excellent (laughs) but uh but yeah it's it's uh you know it's been a lot of fun and i i was i was really excited when you started your show and you told me about it because i don't know Talking into the void is just really fun for some reason.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and if people um,
1: listen to it, it's even better.
0: Well, I appreciate you coming on because it um, is certainly a little bit different once it's the conversational aspect of it. So um, we'll uh, be able to to get into that uh, as much as we can today. We are going to be discussing... Mm-hmm the 1955 masterpiece of film noir, Kiss Me Deadly. So yes, we were trying to figure out which movie we were going to do, and this was one that you had seen a while back, right? Yes. Um, and yes. wanted to revisit it. And so that is what we are going to be discussing at length
1: today. And let's not forget that you're going to be coming onto my show, the Rotten Horror Picture Show, to talk about Night of the Hunter. Yes, so
0: yes, a couple couple weeks probably, maybe a little bit longer, but yes, we'll do a couple crossovers, and uh, yeah, I can't wait to do that too. Night of the Hunter is also 1955. Oh, excellent. Very um, coincidental.
1: Big year for weird noir movies.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, So, in order to get the best use of Clay's time. I'm going to... I'm a very, very busy man, Dan. I know, I know. We're, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to maximize Clay's time um, and get as much discussion as we can into this episode. So that means that the normal 10, 15-minute plot rehash that uh, I do when we're doing individual films, I'm going to shrink that down to about a minute. Um, so we will do a little bit of background, just place in the classic noir canon, uh, Where Kiss Me Deadly Falls. We'll do that quick plot rehash, and then we'll get into some discussion with Clay. So,
1: I'm interested in the background, because I, I didn't know anything about this movie, and I feel like once you know more about it, it becomes infinitely more interesting. So,
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, up. too. Um, I had not known a lot of the things that I found out in researching for this episode. Mm -hmm. I knew that it was based on a Mickey Spillane novel, uh, for instance, but I did not know how loosely it was based on it. Um, But we'll we'll get into that. So today we are discussing Kiss Me Deadly. It was completed in late 1954. It premiered on April 20th, 1955. General release was a few days later. Excuse me. It was directed by and produced by Robert Aldrich. It was written for the screen by A.I. Bezarides from the novel by Mickey Spillane of the same name. The production studio was Parkland Pictures. It was released through United Artists, director of photography Ernest Laszlo, score by Frank Duvall, art director William Glasgow, the editor was Michael Luciano, and it starred... Ralph Meeker, Albert Decker, Paul Stewart, Juana Hernandez, Wesley Addy, Marion Carr, Gabby Rogers, Jack Lambert, Maddie Comfort, Maxine Cooper, Jack Elam, and a trench coat wearing Cloris Leachman in her first significant film role.
1: I was, I was excited to see Jack Elam because I saw his name in the credits and I didn't see him and I go, oh, there's those weird eyes. And he's very young here, too. This is probably one of his first movies. Maybe not. I don't know. He was an old guy.
0: He was. Yeah, he was in a couple other noirs in the 50s. Yeah. Um, I want to say... I have
1: to assume only yeah. playing bad guys. Yeah. Because yeah, you can't play a good guy with a face like that.
0: That's true. That's true. But as as he came on the screen, it, I was just... I had flashes of Once Upon a Time in the West. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, But yeah, so we are going to just talk a little bit about the background, like I said. So, Kiss Me Deadly was written by A.I. Bezarides, like I said, but very, very loosely based on the Kiss Me Deadly novel by Mickey Spillane. Now, Mickey Spillane was, in terms of hard-boiled crime writers, and we've talked about this a few times before, where so much of the literary background for film noir is based around the hard-boiled crime literature that originated – well, not really originated, but very much got popular in the 20s, 30s, 40s. Uh, so Mickey Spillane was on the later end of that, but he was actually by far the most commercially successful of the authors. Um, really? Yes. Yeah, so, um Dashiell Hammett so often is regarded as you know the father of – that that kind of writing, um, at least in the American tradition, and then you have Raymond Chandler, obviously, and you have um, Kane and Woolrich and other people, and then Mickey Spillane comes along, and he just kind of like, it, you know, dials the dials it up to eleven sure. in terms of violence and um, and uh, scandal in his yeah. in his stories, and uh, it did um, great things for him in terms of book sales, so. It was not viewed in a very good light by the screenwriter or Robert Aldrich, the director and the producer. So they pretty much um, took it and changed as many things as they could possibly think of yeah. and took it from New York, put it in LA, a um, bunch of other things.
1: Um, well, I, I, sorry, I don't mean to no, jump in. go for it. I had, I had read or seen that uh, Mike Hammer was based on Joseph McCarthy. And so uh, the director and the the screenwriter were um, a little bit more left-leaning than Mickey Mickey Spillane, apparently. And so they they changed a lot of that stuff to reflect how – I mean, it's actually a pretty appropriate – representation of joseph Joseph mccarthy who turns out to be wrong about everything
0: yeah yeah i've not been able to read any mickey Spillane, but i've seen Mm -hmm. a few excerpts from his books and um commies is used quite a bit Mm -hmm. um and i think that um i think that there's quite a bit of violence towards those characters in his book makes sense Uh, so actually we'll see a little bit of that with ralph meeker's performance of it but Kind of a very multi dimensional performance by Ralph Meeker in it, so.
1: I am looking forward to talking about every performance in this movie.
0: Okay. Yes. I will try and keep up because there's so many characters (laughs) that um, I'll, I'll let you lead the way, then. Okay, so we are roughly three quarters of the way into the eventual classic era of film noir when we're talking about Kiss Me Deadly here, so... A few times we've mentioned the many twists and turns that happened in the classic era of film noir that evolved over 20 years from roughly the early 40s to the late 1950s. And at this point, a few things that we had talked about, you know, the birth of film noir, the World War II years of film noir, those are very much in the rearview mirror. We also are past the HUAC hearings of 1947. We're past the 1948 Supreme Court ruling um, for the major studios. We'll get into those in some future episodes. Um, But just so we have our bearings here, we also have television that came out in the late 40s and just exploded in popularity. And at this point, we have several years of the Cold War. The conflict in Korea had just ended. We're smack dab in the middle of the nuclear age where the threat of just total destruction seems to be possible at any moment. I mm-hmm. know neither one of us lived through that, but I just can't really Get a imagine. Good dose it. of it
1: now, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. So, certainly, the uh, I, I do always remember the uh, turtle duck and cover. Oh yeah, cartoon. That mm-hmm. was fun though. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so we are right in the nuclear age, and also in terms of film noir, we've also gotten more psychological, and even darker. So, in general, we always talk about how dark film noir is, but after the 1950-1952 kind of range, it really starts to take even more of a darker turn. There's more violence, this, this movie being one of the prime examples of that, and it goes into even deeper psychological places in terms of the characters and in terms of the plot. So, we've also made it into this area where... People that are making film noirs at this point are somewhat, quote unquote, self-conscious, i.e. they're they're filmmakers and they kind of know what film noir is at this point. They know what they're making. They're playing off of the themes and the visual style and the tropes that have been talked about before. So it's not the beginning where everything was kind of naturally coming together. At this point, it's kind of realized Mm -hmm. and it's part of the reason why it starts to make its decline in the next few years so this is a late masterpiece and just to do our one minute recap of the plot so we know we know how uh, what happens in this movie I'm gonna I'm gonna try this all right sure okay my one minute recap. Unscrupulous private detective Mike Hammer happens by chance to pick up a woman on the road late at night in L.A. She mysteriously tells him that if they don't make it to the next stop to remember me, quote, They do not make it. They are ambushed by hidden assailants who torture and kill the woman and, then ki- and try to kill Mike Hammer via car accident. He survives, though, and is soon onto the case because he thinks it could be something big. He stumbles his way through a list of characters and situations who are involved with this this complicated ordeal and finally discovers that the woman had known about an important secret and had swallowed a key before dying. He gets that key from the coroner, I think, um, I think
1: so, yeah.
0: medical examiner, Yeah. one of, one of those. Um, it's to a locker at the Hollywood Athletic Club where a strong box is found and some dangerous blinding substance is in it. Police investigators then tell Mike Hammer three things, Manhattan Project, Los Alamos, Trinity, and he realizes that this investigation is bigger than he could have ever dreamed of. The finale takes place at the beach house of one of the conspirators, where the box is opened, a chain reaction occurs, and the house erupts in flames and explosions, just as Mike Hammer and his secretary escape onto the beach to watch
1: the destruction. Yeah, that's, yeah. It was almost exactly a minute. Good job.
0: All right. So Clay, mm. when was the first time you saw this? You know, we know you saw it before. Yes. When was the first time you saw it? What do you remember? And upon the rewatch, what stood out to you?
1: Well, uh, the first time I saw this was probably seven or eight years ago. <laughs> I used to do a. Um, my, my friend Jim and I used to do a yearly movie marathon. On the the date where all the numbers lined up, so we started on six six oh six and went through twelve twelve twelve, and this was a later one. I feel like this was maybe like twenty ten or something like this. So it's been jeez, I forgot what year we were in. It's hard. It's hard to believe twenty ten was fourteen years <laughs> 14 ago. Fourteen years ago, shit. Um, yeah, and and so I think the reason it made it on the list was because I had seen or read somewhere that this was an inspiration for the Pulp Fiction briefcase with the thing with the light. The light I, I have heard briefcase. that as well. Yes. Um, and so I was curious to see that and, uh, yeah, watching it. It's funny. Cause when I watched it the other night for this, I remembered so little of it, but I remembered the beginning and I remembered the end. Got it. And which, you know, may speak to my thoughts in the middle of the movie, but, <laughs> um, the, yeah. the maze of a middle. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's really all over the place. um, but yeah, it, it, I remembered really liking it, and it, it, it definitely made an impression as, as a film noir that was, um, <clears throat> I enjoy film noir, but I always like it when there's a little bit of a twist to that, to really any genre. Sure. Um, and so to have one like this that skews so weird in a way that I, not that I've seen a ton, you've obviously seen more than I have. I feel like I can safely say this is a pretty unique movie as far as film noir goes.
0: Yes, I would absolutely say that. It stands out in so many regards. However, it just checks off so many of the boxes. Yeah. But just in a very unusual way, I feel like. Yeah. Um, yeah, if we if we go through everything um, that we classically talk about as components of film noir, elements of film noir, we see just...
1: T- tons of them in this as i was watching it i i was seeing like oh i mean there's weird stuff here but they're still working in the same framework like mm-hmm. it's this isn't really that much different than like the maltese falcon as far as you know they, they even they call it out a lot more explicitly in this that whatever they're looking for is just you know what the great what's it i think the great
0: called. what's it yeah
1: but uh it, yeah and you know w- what stood out to me this time was how I didn't realize this was so late in the game,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but it makes sense because this feels very much like it is a, a movie that's playing with a lot of the established tropes and turning them on their head a little bit. And from the little research that I did, it sounded like that was something the director, the director was a bit of a, um, what's the word we're looking for not a contrarian, but like a bit of a disruptor where he like he, yeah. he liked to subversive. That's the word. Yeah. And, uh, I, after I, after I knew that about him, a lot of the decisions in this movie made a lot more sense to me. And, um, and knowing the same about the screenwriter as well. Mm -hmm. So to see this, that where they are doing a structure, that's fairly, um, common, Mm -hmm. but what they're doing inside the structure being so different and heightened and weird, I think just makes this to a really unique movie that, uh, uh, I, I I I think people should see it because it's it's very cool.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, one thing that I notice is did that I
1: answer your entire question. Yes, you did.
0: Yes, so um, we're just going to talk about <laughs> sure. as many parts of this movie yeah. as possible. I think so. But one thing that stands out to me, just uh, one of the the big takeaways, is that I just feel that a there's a ton of characters, mm. but they all kind of play into this nice cohesive total. And yeah. even having, like, I mean, not a lot of star power in this movie, and Ralph Meeker is is excellent, but he doesn't, like, overpower any scenes, so you really get to see yeah. everything really blending together alongside this, like, really cool, twisted story. And we've talked so many times about how film noir in general is full of complex plots and a lot of times is trying to disorient the viewer. And this is certainly no exception to that with the number of, um, scenes in that middle investigative section oh, yeah. of the movie, the beginning scene, hmm. the backwards rolling credits. Yes. What did you think of that?
1: Uh, it, it caught me off guard for a minute and then I started thinking about it as though it, it, it I, I, it's it's funny that they did this in a movie because every time I see them do this on a road, it always breaks my brain a little bit. Because mm-hmm. when they when they write words on a road, they do it like that where they write the first word at the bottom because you're driving over it, right? Yeah. Which is how they do it here, and it so it was uh, it was strange to see in a movie, but uh, and it really kind of disorients you right away.
0: Yeah, that's the uh <clears throat> that excuse me, that's the impression that I got to, And not to assume that we know exactly what Robert Alders was going for there, but it it certainly did seem like disorientation might be the goal. And the other thing I really like too is the beginning is a great forerunner to Lost Highway.
1: Well, that's the thing that I was gonna say is um my big thesis coming into this show is that I don't know if I've ever heard him talk about this movie specifically, mm-hmm. but this whole movie feels like a core text for David Lynch. Yeah. Like the, everything in this movie. If if you think of this movie as a David Lynch movie, it makes a hundred times more sense. You know, from the beginning is very much lost highway. The opening credits lost highway. The performances. When I was thinking about like, what would this David, it would be a David Lynch movie. They would, it's the, all the same performances like Nick, the, the Greek guy. Yep. That's a Very straight, much uh, so. Yeah, that's basically like Robert Loggia screaming about pulling over to the side of the road. Um, <laughs> And not to mention the end. The ending is the most... I feel like he lifted from that directly in the way that they photographed the house burning because that felt straight out of Twin Peaks. That whole final sequence where she opens the box and the uh, when they hit the beach, the way that they backlight the house with that like strobe light effect mm-hmm. and the smoke coming off. Yeah, That's like, he lifted that directly from this movie. I don't know if he's conscious that he did it, but that's his special effect that if you saw that without context, you'd go David Lynch.
0: Yeah. And even just down to the beach house at the end of yeah lost highway. Yeah. There's that too. Yeah. There's just from the, from the very beginning, there's a little bit of that sense. If you're familiar with the movie lost highway and then you just, like you said, Throughout it, there's just a lot of parallels and the phone
1: draw. call too the phone call that he gets um uh, with the unnamed message that yep. says you don't need to know my name it just it was very similar to like you know Dick, Dick is Laron Dick Laron is yeah. dead
0: yeah at the beginning yeah
1: or even the Robert Blake phone call where he's like, I mean we've met before in your house or whatever the hell he says
0: yeah exactly exactly so i I always found the beginning of it to be um I don't know what the the right word is, but um it just gets you off on a really good foot because there's the anonymity of that whole attack scene mm-hmm. and you get that you get that sense that there's some sort of conspiracy going on here yeah. it's either federal agents or it might even be you know gangsters or something, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of anonymity around what's going on and you know that you're going to be into some sort of conspiracy yeah and um Then you get a a torture scene, very quick, but that was one of the, I think, one of the biggest issues that the censors had with the movie, was that quick torture scene. Yeah, it's pretty
1: brutal for the time.
0: It was, yes. And I think very similarly to Psycho, which came out a few years later, um, I think that Aldrich's defense was that most of what people were perceiving as just brutality- was not really happening on the screen, right, yeah. kind of like the um perceived nudity of the the shower scene in psycho right where yeah. there is no nudity in it, but with the cutting and with everything going on, your your mind kind of fills in the blanks. yeah, um,
1: I also heard some recently someone talking about psycho and mentioning <clears throat> that in the shower scene there's like one shot of the knife going in and there is not, like yeah. it absolutely is not. The blade goes across and it looks like, if, if it's fast, it looks like it's going in, but it's not. Yeah. But your brain does the rest of the work for you. Yeah. Which is, not to go off on a tangent here, but I find that stuff so interesting coming from someone who had such a um, staunch defense of the depiction of violence because I always wonder how much that holds up as movies get more violent mm-hmm. because you've got not to go into my own <clears throat> realm here, but by the late 1970s, you've got squibs going off all over the place and, mm-hmm. you know, people getting their throats cut and all this stuff. And then Halloween comes out, which is very not bloody at all. Yeah. Which then sets off a trend that comes after it of the most bloody movies that have ever been made in, the, in history up to that point. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's very, I've always found it very fascinating how the, uh, don't show it and let your brain do the work. Tries to balance itself out with just the escalation of visual violence in movies.
0: Yeah, i I definitely agree. I think that, I mean, I I do need to do some more research in terms of the decline of the studio system and also the escalation in the nineteen sixties mm. of on screen violence and um, a bunch of other things that weren't permitted prior to it. Um, but yeah, this is very much a little bit of a sneak peek of what you're going to see later
1: yeah. on, and it's it is they're not showing you anything, but it is one of those instances where he's right. Yeah, they're not sh- even though they're not showing it to you, you it is it feels brutal. Yeah, you know, just seeing her legs kind of dangling and the screaming and stuff and the pliers. Blech. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's um, it's your your mind can can make that pretty pretty mm. brutal. So, but yeah, and um, so then he. They try and stage a car accident. He survives it. They Then we find out in the interrogation with the police that he is this, you know, divorce case private eye. You know, not the private eye of Dashiell Hammett and right. Raymond Chandler. Um, Which is a
1: change from the book, I think, right? So... He's more of a traditional PI in the book, I think. I
0: believe so, yes. I I do really want to go back and read. I just haven't had a
1: chance to yet. But yes, I do believe that that's one of the 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 changes. One of the first instances where they just make him more of a scumbag than he is in the book.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, But I think I was trying to – one of the things that they do there is obviously he recognizes and calls out – he says like, yeah – I'm a stinker or I'm a rotten guy or whatever. And it's, it's very clear that he has this very shaky or very unique to him moral compass. Mm -hmm. Um, but I found it very interesting that not too late, not too much later, um, there's that scene where the old man is carrying stuff in. Uh, he's, he's got that huge trunk of books and just a very kind act. He helps him up the stairs. Yeah. I'm like, Hmm. It's like why I, I found it interesting that they would throw cuz there's a couple other instances like that too where he actually does act like a pretty upstanding person mm-hmm. for a very small amount of time.
1: Yeah, yes. <laughs> this is true.
0: Um and then and then he gets back to um you know all the all the different things that he likes to do. Well, that guy <laughs> wasn't a dame or a
1: mug, so he has yeah. no reason to. to
0: and um, towards them. there there was no desk drawer to Put his fingers in.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that. He's, he's, he's fairly, I mean, he could have been a lot worse to the opera singing guy. He treats yeah. him relatively, except for breaking that one One record. One
0: record. Is, That's, yeah. I mean, that, I mean, he had quite the collection, right? What's one?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, could be an experiment. Anyway, anyway.
0: Yeah. So we're, we're jumping around here, but that middle section of the movie, once, once Mike Hammer's out of the interrogation and he's kind of recovering from what happened, and he goes into um, this really long maze of trying to figure out what's going on just for the mere fact that he thinks it's going to be something big, something right. that he could perhaps make a lot of money on or could make him a name. He really doesn't have much of a motivation to look into this other than that. It's really kind of a selfish motivation that he's that he's trying to figure out what's going on here.
1: Yeah. He's, you know, uh, again, not to jump around, but uh, in, in history – didn't it felt kind of similar to what am I trying to say here? Um, <clears throat> I can see the connection as movies change through the through the years and and, and see how much different genres are pulling from different stuff. Because uh, I've been um, getting into a lot of the Italian jala movies lately, mm-hmm. and one of the core things in the jala movie is that it's usually a person who is involved in a crime or witnesses a crime taking it upon themselves to uh, to investigate it because the police aren't doing it, and they're just personally invested in it,
2: mm-hmm. which is
1: not unique to that genre, but obviously comes from this, mm-hmm. because those Giallo movies are, though they got more horror elements added later, they come from Italian murder mystery novels, which are coming from American murder mystery novels. So all that stuff is kind of like a long a long string of of uh of influences and and hammering the same piece of metal in different ways
0: yeah i I definitely agree, and we will definitely touch on the um similarities between film noir and horror later We're sure. going to tap, tap into your sure. your extensive horror knowledge later take a break um,
1: i'll just talk for an hour
0: i know it'll be it'll be awesome <laughs> <laughs> and um so but one one thing in particular that that reminds me of is. There are a lot of film noir movies where the investigation is neither a private eye nor a federal agent nor a police investigator, but like you said, is just a normal citizen that wants the truth. And this this is kind of like one of those instances we were talking before where it takes a normal noir trope of somebody wanting the truth. Usually it's to exonerate a friend or a family member Mm -hmm. who's been falsely accused of something or for a little bit more of a... Um for lack of a better term a a more scrupulous approach mm. to wanting to do it, sure, this is just you know purely him trying to uncover something big for his own personal gain, yeah. and he's not trying to help anybody i don't think i the implication to me was that he doesn't really have too much remorse for what happened to the chloris Leachman character yeah uh, i
1: i couldn't totally track that because he's such a um he is such a heightened version of this sort of hard boiled detective character mm-hmm. and where he is so stone like. Yeah. And everybody else in the movie is so heightened that it's hard to really pin down what his interest is in this at all. Yeah. Because uh, they, they, as you're saying, they do they do set him up as someone who is plays both sides of the fence and is, has no problem ruining other people's lives to get more money. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like clearly the Cloris Leachman character made an impression on him. Cause it's like, that's part of the weirdness, right? Like mm-hmm. that was just like, the thing that I kept thinking is he, he's just thinking this was too weird not to look into.
0: Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, <clears throat> And the fact that it leads back to that poem, um, I'm not sure how much I like that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, but there's a lot of this. A lot of this movie where they were making connections, and I was like, I don't really know how they got there, but sure.
0: Yeah, fine. when when they're when they're um, in front of the body, and he's kind of putting it together that she swallowed something, mm-hmm. he makes a lot of leaps there. Um, yes, <laughs> that I don't think are very called for.
1: <laughs> I did really like that scene because of the coroner, as he's as. Hammer's putting it together, the coroner is just like going like, Yes, you're getting closer. Yes. Yeah, like he's already figured it out. He's like, I did find something weird in her stomach. Yes. It's
0: it's very funny too, because um it's almost like he's nodding along like he knows the entirety of this whole right. conspiracy. Yes. Yeah. Like he's in on it. Yeah.
1: And um like he he doesn't realize the camera's on and he's like, Yes, I read the script too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it but like that scene, I feel like if you took that and put that in any other movie that's, a, that's a comedy scene. Yeah. Whereas in this, it's, it's just part of this weird heightened, uh, close to par. It's, it's weird that this movie takes it very seriously, but you can kinda, if you know about the director and the, the screenwriter, you go, Oh, they're, they're taking this seriously, but they have their, Tongues firmly in their cheek
0: yeah, for a lot of this. It's it's a little bit of that broke nature that you get towards like the end of genres when they yeah. start to play it back, like Scream, for instance. Right. Um yeah. on the horror side. That's so.
1: actually an interesting I mean, this obviously isn't as uh overtly self-referential yeah. as something like Scream is, but you can feel I, I bet I would be curious to see how this movie plays to someone who's not really familiar with the genre outside of popular understanding of it. Mm-hmm. Cause I feel like they would watch this movie and go like, this is as silly as I thought this genre was. I don't understand why people like this. Yeah. But at the same time, you've got the bookend of the beginning and the ending where it's legitimately interesting and weird. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a very strange movie to, to kind of clock as far as the tone they're going for
0: yeah i agree and we touched on it at the very beginning i mean this is one of the essentials of the classic era of film noir just Ooh. cited by so many people i think paul schrader and his 72 essay notes on film noir which is one of the uh most widely available widely read ones he calls oh, cool. it Could've he calls that. it the masterpiece interesting um and i i'm Ninety percent sure that's that's how he refers to it, but he yeah. he p- calls it out as the masterpiece coming later on in the era because he bookends with the Maltese Falcon and Touch of Evil from nineteen forty one to nineteen fifty eight. So we're nineteen fifty five here, and this is where the the top of the mountain is, yeah, uh, for him. Um, but for for everybody that really kind of appreciates film noir, I think. It's there are definitely things that you can pull out. There's like we said. There's a the the middle section of this movie or act two, if you were, mm. uh, is is a little bit of just like a, a labyrinth. That
1: yeah, it's again not to keep making David Lynch comparisons, but as I was watching this, I found myself thinking ah, the middle of this movie kind of drags. Yeah, the, the the beginning is great, the end is great, but this middle part is is kind of draggy, but. As I, as I was watching it and going through it, I was like, "It's actually, it's it's very lab- labyrinthian, mm-hmm. but I think that's kind of the point." And built on top of this labyrinth of plot is this heightened universe that they're living in, yep. and the way that the movie is shot and the locations that they're going that they're using, which gives it this very kind of like dreamlike feeling to it. And I know that's, that's kind of a cop-out word to use a lot, but I think it's true. Um, <clears throat> specifically, the scene that, that got me like thinking, like, what the hell is going on here, is when he's being followed by the guy with the knife mm-hmm. in probably the least thought-out tracking scene. Like, the guy's walking three steps behind him, and every time Hammer stops, this guy stops, so it's clear he knows he's being followed. And then they get into this fight, Hammer beats the crap out of the guy, throws him down a flight of stairs and asks him no questions. Yeah. And I don't, you don't know who this guy is, who, why he's tracking hammer at this point. Hammer doesn't ask. They just move on to the next scene. And I'm like, this is so strange. Why is he not trying to get any information? And then as I'm processing this as more of like a David Lynch approach to the genre, it's like, okay, this makes a little bit more sense as being something that isn't, necessarily as plot literal mm-hmm. as a lot of these movies tend to be because you get so caught up in what's going on. Those are the worst ones yeah. that are so twisty and you spend your entire time trying to figure out what the hell's going on and doesn't the the movie just doesn't work. Yeah. But here, they're kind of like just putting it out there and in a stylized way that makes the... Um, it makes their approach to these things that is, is less uh, uh, tied down to the plot trappings of the genre. And I've kind of lost my train of thought here, much <laughs> like the movie does, but it's, it's um it just kind of plays into this kind of thing where it, it almost feels like it's the dream of Mike Hammer's character because that sequence is very much like a classic tough guy thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But when you look at, What's actually going on? He's like he's not getting any information out of it. He's just taking pleasure and beating the crap out of this guy. Yes. Almost almost. Hopefully a some of that made sense.
0: No, it definitely does. I was going to say that it almost is a little bit of a foreshadowing of the pleasure he gets when he when he slams the guy's hand in
1: oh, the yeah. drawer. Oh I mean, he's definitely like a like again, he's he's they've they've taken this hard boiled character who up to this point, I mean, this genre's been around since you say since forty one? yeah the, usually 40
0: 41 is is most yeah. most of the um most of the early um hints at it and the maltese falcon came out in october 1941 that's okay usually regarded so as
1: you're coming up on 15 years um and like as far that's pretty that's a lengthy run for a, a single genre yeah like if you again to jump back to horror like the slasher boom of the 80s barely made it out of the 80s like they got like eight good years out of it. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of just pittered off into, into nothing. Um, almost 15 years in and Mike, this character, Mike hammer is really a, uh, amped up version of what the hard boiled detective became, which is the stoic guy who talks in really, uh, big, ridiculous phrase. Like his first lines in this movie are absurd. Yeah. Like when she gets into the car and she's like, "Can you save me?" He's like, "Well, I don't care if you as long as you don't look at me or something weird shit like that." Yeah. And I I actually wrote in my notes I was like, "If this is how he is, his life must be exhausting." <laughs> but, you know, you he's he's the hardboiled detective is this very um stoic character who is constantly as getting involved with women and stuff like this and and is someone who's always getting into fights um and that's what he does. But this is like just a cranked up version of that where he's not getting into fights because he has to get into a fight. He's getting into a fight cause he likes fighting. Yes. He likes hurting people. Yes. Every time he hurts someone, he gets this like maniacal smirk on his face. That is uh, in and of itself, a comment on this whole genre of uh, that is violent for, I feel like a lot of these movies tend to be violent in a way that, Robert Altrich would not like. Yeah. Which is violent, uh, which is the, like the, the James Bond style of violence where people, you shoot people and they fall over. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very bloodless and very um, without consequences. Whereas in this movie, all the violence, even if it doesn't have direct consequences, is coming from Mike Hammer, who is a sadist. Yeah. He's just got, he, he's beating up these people and he's clearly getting a thrill out of it, which is so weird. For these kind of movies, or at least these kinds of of heroes, mm-hmm. so it's it's just a I I just find it very fascinating.
0: Yeah, I I agree. There, one of the things that always jumps out to me with the private eye characters in film noir is the really wavy um, moral compass that they run yeah. by, yeah. where something is okay in their book, they're willing to do it, whether or not it's accepted in society or according to law or something like that. Um, So if you go back to like Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe, those two classic private eye detectives, you have that aspect of it. And here, he obviously has that as well, but it's just way further down the line of the spectrum of what is acceptable to him. Yeah.
1: Um, And Spade, like, you know, you watch Maltese Falcon... You never – he's conflicted, but you never really get the – you never really think that Sam Spade isn't going to do the right thing. Or
0: or he would just hurt somebody for the sake of hurting. Yeah, or like
1: the Bogart character, you never really think he's not going to do the right thing. Yeah. And Marlo, Marlo tends to be – he's kind of a loser. Like Yeah, to a certain extent, yeah. yeah. The way that he's portrayed in the books, the the few that I've read, and especially when you get later on something like The Long Goodbye. Yeah. He's – he's not like hip and he gets beat up a lot. Like that's the hallmark of these mo- these stories is the main character gets the crap beat out of him all the time. Yeah. Tends to lose a lot of fights. Mike hammer's not losing fights. Yeah. he loses a couple but only because <laughs> they get the jump on him you know
0: yeah I mean there's that one scene in the where he's supposed to be putting on a bathing suit to go into the pool and the two thugs come in yeah and they don't even show it somehow he like completely incapacitates yes. one in the matter of about three seconds yeah and the other one is so shocked by it that it has to they have to run away for their own psychological...
1: (laughs) Going back to not showing the violence, I think the thing that they do so well in this by not showing it is they show the result of it, and the result is that much more disturbing than anything they could have shown you. Like at the end, when uh, Elam comes in to find uh, the other guy dead, Mm -hmm. and he's like slumped against the thing with his eyes open really wide, it's really creepy. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter how he got that way. Yeah. it's It's scary enough.
0: I did want to ask you, because you are a horror expert.
1: Oh, I don't know if I'd say that, but...
0: Uh, I would. I would. So, your podcast,
1: Rotten Horror Picture Show... If you, if you go by the 10,000 hours thing, then maybe yes. Yes. I've definitely probably watched 10,000 hours of horror movies, so... Uh, I would I would definitely
0: say so. So, your, your Rotten Horror Picture Show goes into the top 200 horror movies mm-hmm. on the Rotten Tomatoes list. Yep. You've seen probably thousands beyond that, <laughs> and... Um, I'm curious when you watch this, and you've hinted at this a little bit so Mm -hmm. far in terms of the um, connection to Giallo, but what else do you see when you watch Kiss Me Deadly or any other film noir for that Mm -hmm. matter in terms of affecting horror or any particular films that um, you see a connection to that come later on after film noir? Do you see any seeds in watching a film noir that you see later on in horror.
1: Oh, definitely, yeah. Because yeah. um, the thing is, if you go back to where these two genres started, they're started by the same people, mm-hmm. right? Because you've got um, all of the all of the German directors yep. who are who are crafting the uh, visual language for horror movies in the silent era um, and crime movies in, in Germany in the silent era. They're the ones who are coming over to America and starting the film noir stuff. Like, for instance, um uh, Robert Siodmak, yep. who is a big noir guy. I know him as the director of Son of Dracula. Yep. And his brother, Kurt Siodmak, he created the Wolfman. Yeah. And so all these guys are are the visual language that they've created doing horror movies in Germany, they're now taking that and doing Uh, crime movies in America, Mm -hmm. but they're also the same guys doing horror movies in America. Yeah. So this stuff is kind of happening at the same time. Uh, So you've got really great photography happening in the forties in crime movies, really great photography happening in in, uh, horror movies. And uh, I think their content, uh, the Venn diagram of the two genres cross over quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to see a lot of people like, um, David Lynch or even Alfred Hitchcock, who's a, a noir guy yep. who ends up making Psycho, which is not a not really a noir-looking movie so much, but mm-hmm. it's, it's still a, it's a crime movie with a, with a horror element to it. And all of this stuff, just as I was saying before, it all just braids together as it goes through the years. And so when you get to something like Giallo, Giallo movies are essentially aping a bit from Hitchcock – but they're also adding a horror element to it with the extra violence that comes in, mm-hmm. and then giallo movies end up turning into uh, slasher movies, and so it's it's all kind of the same thing. Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah they're, they're all definitely taking from each other as as the years go on. Yeah,
0: and um, one thing that uh, I really enjoy is I enjoy learning about Val Luton. Oh, sure, and because yeah. he in particular, he. I mean, this was at the beginning of film noir, but his low-budget tactics at RKO were a direct kind of link and influence to the creation of film noir, especially Nicholas Musaraka, who is a cinematographer that worked with him that went on to make many famous film noirs. And like you said, visually, they are not all that different at certain points, Um, but a lot of times it's just the, the subject matter that the visual style is accentuating or amplifying
1: is, you know, either the crime focus or. Oh, sure. I mean, the scary focus. Cat people is basically a noir movie more than it is a horror movie.
0: Yeah. And I think that you could, I mean, a lot of, there are a lot of hybrid films there. We've, we've been talking about noir as a genre, but a lot of different words are used for it. Style is used. Mood is used. um, Movement is used. I think that a lot of people that refer to it a little bit more as a style, Mm -hmm that allows for more of a hybrid film where you have a noir Western, for instance, or a noir sci-fi picture like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Something like Psycho is very much in the noir horror hybrid area. Hmm. Very much like um, Diabolique is at at the same time. So um, it's, it's, it's certainly not like trying to mix a musical with, um you know a western right <laughs> it's it they they um they're kind of built to go hand in hand at certain points, so um yeah that was that was one thing I definitely wanted to ask you about because of your your horror background
1: um and especially when you're in the era of of the um the Hayes code and all this kind of stuff when the they have to get more creative about the ways they're telling these stories. If you look at a movie like um, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the Black Cat. Yes, yep. The long time ago. Gossi yes. and and um Karlov. Yeah. That's a that's a horror movie that feels very much like a noir movie because it's two it's people reconciling um their past trauma that happened in the war and stuff like this. And mm-hmm. and so yeah, this stuff crosses over. Very, very easily, especially in those movies where they have to be a little bit more creative in the way they depict things.
0: Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, last big question I wanted to ask is a little bit of a zoom out. And we have really been talking about a lot of different areas of film here, and this has been largely a discussion of Kiss Me Deadly and film noir in general. But I did want to take a little bit of a step back because we, when we talk about film noir on this podcast, we're really – using a microscope and looking at just a, a series of only a few hundred films in a grander film history of 130 plus years. And I think if you look at the movie database online and letterbox, which uses that, I, I want to say that they have cited almost 900,000 films. <laughs> um, yeah, just, just we're, we're looking at this really, really small sliver when we discuss film noir and, I wanted to ask you because of somebody who knows all eras and all genres very well, because every time I talk with you, it doesn't matter if we're talking about horror, if we're talking about sci-fi, what, whatever it is. And you also know a lot more about TV shows than I do. Um, <laughs> I'm, full,
1: I'm full of useless knowledge. That's why I needed to start podcasting. It's the perfect medium yeah. for that,
0: because you can just go. <laughs> yeah.
1: So as somebody who
0: knows so many different areas, what does film noir mean to you and what is its place and slash significance in the larger spectrum of motion pictures, film history.
1: Um, what does film noir mean to me? Uh, I think to, to talk about its place in the larger kind of zeitgeist of everything, I think it's very important because like I said before, um, the stuff that was kind of pushing the envelope in Germany, Mm -hmm. visually the expressionism stuff that really kind of makes American movies look a lot cooler and a lot more dynamic. And so when you get to something like the third man, which is very expressionistic, you've just got this amazing photography that is um, inspiring so many people to come after it. And I think it's, it's the kind of photography that even today is if something is black and white the reason most of the time they're like we should make it look like a noir movie you know like it's it's very iconic mm-hmm. and i i think a lot of um i think movie photography is very indebted to that change um because you know this even if you look back at uh Try, like even the first like Dracula movie for going to horror, not really that interesting looking.
2: Yeah, you know? like, yeah, up, very flat looking.
1: Yeah, American American movies from uh, f- silent era up through about the forties.
2: Yeah,
1: fairly flat, not really a dynamic. Yeah, <clears throat> except like Frankenstein. Frankenstein is of course you know very. I'm not. I'm not going to go down that route, but <laughs> um, it's just it's a it's a genre that sticks around mm-hmm. in a way that a lot of other ones don't, and I think. St- I think you can apply it to a much wider range of stories than, say, a Western or even horror because you still get people making what would be considered noir movies today even if they don't really necessarily call it that. Yeah. You know, sometimes, whenever they say modern noir, usually that means someone's got a trench coat on in it Mm -hmm. and it's very explicitly calling back like Chinatown or Blade Runner or something like that.
0: Yep. L.A. Confidential.
1: L.A. Confidential, of course. Um, and those are all great movies and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that the influence of the genre is more um, nuanced mm-hmm. across uh, many different types of movies. If, if you look at, you know, if, if David Lynch is pulling from this yeah, and what he's pulling from this is definitely going into twin peaks, mm-hmm. which is then going from twin peaks into the X files, the X files into television of through the nineties all starts looking like that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a it's something that is, for whatever reason, it's a style that is still very effective. Mm-hmm. Um, but.
0: Yeah, it really just that that was part of the the reason for deciding on the name Shadows of Noir. Sure. It's just because it's it's kind of like a double meaning thing where there's obviously shadows in noir photography, and we get it all over the place in the classic era. But it's just the years beyond the classic era obviously in neo noir territory where you're either paying homage to or doing like a retro noir like Chinatown related sure. confidential like you were saying but it's just i would be very hard pressed to find um a dramatic piece where uh somebody is trying to portray a dark crime story now and isn't using at least a little bit sure. of some of the visual style if yeah. they're they're really you know trying to it in- Adhere to it and and make it um, you know a, a top film it's I feel like it's very unusual if they don't borrow on some of those things from the film Noir classic era and neo noirs that have been proven to make the story that much better yeah but i mean
1: if if you have a movie where someone wears a hat and stands under under a hard top light, yeah. then people are like, oh noir yeah you know it's and we didn't even get into the line you can draw from Noir to uh Melville in France, yeah, who's riffing on all that stuff, yeah. And then you go from France with that stuff to Japan mm-hmm. and John Woo and all those guys, all that that classic uh Japanese crime stuff is all influenced by the French stuff, which is so it's yep. you know it is it's it's uh it is one of those things that just even though it only lasted like fifteen years or so a little bit more yep. than that it does tend to stick around. The, the thing I was going to ask you about TV. Do you think that there is a correlation in the, like I said, 15 years is a long time mm-hmm. for any genre. Yep. But do you think that there is a correlation between uh, TV and the rise of cop shows and the decline of film noir?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, especially with, I feel like the... Cinematic value that has risen in TV shows in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, how, how much better they are photographically, um, going alongside the fact that so many of them have that base of being a cop show Mm -hmm. or, um, revolving around crime of some sort, because if if you do look back at neo-noir in recent years, I do feel like there has been a little bit of a drop off and maybe that's because like you said, it's being fulfilled via TV shows. Um, a TV show that not only has that subject matter, but borrows a lot of the cinematic effects and that's the way that people get to enjoy it. Yeah. And, um, because in, in the nineties you have a lot of neo-noir and in the early two thousands, you have a lot of neo-noir. Yeah. Um, but if you if you look back at in the last 15 years or so, I think it does be it's a little more sparse, yeah. and it's I think that's a great point that a lot of it is probably being fulfilled via television, kind of bringing it back full circle to Kiss Me Deadly the 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 role of I I forget what his character name is here. Let me see, um, Lieutenant Murphy, mm-hmm. the one who spills the beans that. Um, there's a nuclear aspect to this investigation. And the one who takes his his license and his gun away earlier, like, what role does he really... The whole story could happen without him, except for the spilling of the beans that this is a nuclear allegory. Right, (laughs) right. And um, it's almost like, yeah, we have a private eye movie here. And like you said, the, the cops are in it but to kind of serve a purpose and accelerate it and and spill the beans or, or give the underlying, um, the underlying similarity yeah. to worldly events that that's going on. I so. think
1: they handle that stuff pretty pretty slickly too. Yeah, because they they op- it operates in the kind of way that like movies about the internet operated in the early 90s when people knew it existed but didn't know how it worked yet like the
0: net oh my god yeah yeah where it's
1: just like (laughs) i need to hack into this thing and then you just it's just a bunch of keystrokes and then you're in at the pentagon or whatever yeah like it's a similar thing here where it's been 10 years since the nuclear bomb people know it exists people know it's dangerous but nobody really knows how it works Mm -hmm. and so all you have to do is have him say trinity
0: Los Alamos, Los Alamos, Manhattan, Manhattan, Project, Manhattan Project, and everyone's yeah, hair, hair just stands up on the back of their neck.
1: I was watching a, a breakdown last night that that posited that the end of the movie is the beginning of the end of the world. And that opening that box mm-hmm. has opened, it's like some sort of doomsday weapon. And one of the reasons that it, like the ending is so abrupt is like, that's the end, that's just the end. Because hmm. I did find that, it it makes it's kind of standard for movies of the time yeah to to cut out so quickly but it is a little bit jarring where they get out and then they look back and the place is on fire and that's just the end of the movie
0: yeah especially with the fact that it's very much a chain reaction and the explosions yeah. and the the fire is growing like yeah. is the implication that in 3 minutes they're going to be right exactly they're going to yeah. be incinerated too or is it just going to somehow <laughs> remain in the house <laughs> right
1: yeah like where's it gonna stop I mean,
0: exactly and i think that's a really interesting idea too because i mean they they call it out um right in the movie about the whole pandora's box thing. right yep. and um at this point in history that it's very much we we've entered the age where the nuclear weapons are available to both the united states and the soviet union Mm-hmm and almost like the point of no return, and yeah, that that eventually they're going to be used. Thankfully, <laughs> wasn't the case; we wouldn't be here. Yeah, um, but um, yeah, it's um, it, it just plays on that that constant fear that must have been in everybody's head at in 1955. Well. Awesome, Clay. I wanted to. I wanted just thank you. Wrap this up and, and thank you again for coming on the show, discussing Kiss Me Deadly, discussing film noir in general. Um, everybody, please don't forget about Clay's podcast. We'll link to those in the show notes, and we'll have our links to the Shadows of Noir Patreon and Letterbox as well in the show notes. If you are looking to help us out, a uh, little teaser for next time. Actually, Ooh. we got into it f- a few times in this episode. Um, going to be going into the film history realm because we've done four individual films in a row so we're going to do a little bit of a film history topic and we're going to be talking about film noir and the Hollywood blacklist
1: oh interesting so the connection cool. yeah. with
0: the Red Scare and the McCarthy era and the earlier HUAC hearings um we're going to talk all about that and why film noir was disproportionately affected by that mm. investigation and that whole um What's debacle De- yeah <laughs> i was looking for the right word i couldn't come up with a better one than that sure yeah. perfect
1: well thank you so much for yeah. having me this is a ton of fun
0: absolutely yeah. absolutely thank thank you again clay and um everybody take care until next time and uh hope you come back see ya